0: So, Acts, that's where we've been. Uh, We've been in Acts for almost 18 months, and uh, tonight we have a message in Acts, and then next week is our final message in the story of Acts. And I didn't tell this to the morning services, but we've got a really special gift for anyone and everyone that comes next week, uh, kind of a way to help us remember all that God's done in the story of Acts. So, if for no other reason come back next week for a free gift, I think you will enjoy it. Uh, but last week we covered a lot of ground in the story of Acts. Uh, specifically we looked at uh, a lot of the back chapters, Acts 23, 24, all the way through Acts 28. And one of the summary statements as I was thinking through how do you kind of summarize these stories in the back chapters. And I wrote it down in my journal like this of here's the summary of the back chapters. Half, not back half, but the last few chapters of Acts, I wrote it down like this. God is faithful to accomplish his will in your life. God is faithful to accomplish his will. And I try to make very clear, not your will. God's not committed or faithful to accomplishing your will, your wishes, your wants, your desires, your dreams. But he is committed. Uh, He is faithful to accomplishing his will, his desires, his plans, his dreams, as it were, for your life. And the obvious question was, well, if God's committed to accomplishing his will, well, what is his will? And as we discovered in Acts, his will simply is that we would be his witness. No matter where we are, that we would be his witness. It doesn't matter if we're around other Christians, that we would be a witness to them of who God is and what God is like and what God has done. If we're around non-Christians, people who don't know who Jesus is or asking questions about Jesus, that we would be his witness. That we would be a tangible demonstration, example of this is who God is. This is what God is like, and this is what God has done. Uh, God is committed to accomplishing His will, meaning our witness, no matter where we are. For Paul, didn't matter if he was in prison, if he was in uh, traveling around uh, the country, he didn't. Wherever he was, he was God's witness, and God was faithful to Paul to accomplish His witness or His will in Paul's life. Now, tonight, um, I really had one question. I'm going to hit you up with a lot of questions. But the question that kind of defines the passage that we're in tonight is this. And this is the question. I encourage you to write it down. Three words. Do you believe? That's the question I really want us to think about and wrestle with tonight is, do you believe? Now, obviously, the question is, well, actually believe in what? Because we believe lots of things. But before I specify really what I'm talking about with believe, I wanted to, us to wrestle with, how does belief actually reveal itself in our life? And these might seem like silly examples, but I'm gonna share with you three examples of how there's some commonalities of things we all believe. Every single one of us in this room tonight believe these three things. The first one would be this. We all believe the air quality is pure enough to breathe in this room. And I know that we all believe that because none of you are holding your breath right now. None of you walked in with a mask tonight uh, and fearful of like, I don't think I can breathe the air in this room. None of you walked into this space tonight saying, Michael, has anyone tested the air quality? Is it safe enough for me to breathe? You all believe that it was safe enough for you to breathe the air, that it's pure enough for your lungs. And so you've been breathing contently since you've been here. Here's another one. We all believe that the structural integrity of this building is sound. All of us believe that, and I know that for a fact because you all came in. There was no one who asked me, hey, can I see the blueprints? Can I see, like, when's the last time a structural engineer has walked through this place to make sure that the beams and the ceiling, everything, is safe enough for me to come in? You believed that it was safe enough for you to come into the space, so you came into the space. Here's another obvious one we all believe that the chairs that you are currently sitting in were safe enough for you to sit in and i know that because no one is currently standing except me because i'm not sure that the chairs are actually safe enough so but all of you believe that the chairs are safe enough for you to be sitting in because you're currently sitting down in them now i get that some of you might be thinking Michael, these are really silly examples. You didn't consciously walk in and think about the air and the structure of the building and the integrity, as it were, of your chair. You just sat down. And what I want you to catch is whether it's a conscious decision or a subconscious decision, you still made a decision based on what you believe. So our belief reveals itself in our actions. Whether you think about it or not, it's still a decision and it shows up. What we believe will show up or reveal itself interactions. One of the things that encourages me about Paul is there was a lot of things that he just did almost subconsciously because of what he believed. Uh, I like how J.D. Greer, uh, pastor, author in North Carolina, said it very well. Faith is belief in action. Faith does not exist apart from its action. Faith starts with a mental ascent, but if this mental ascent does not lead to obedience, it is not yet faith. I love that very beginning. Faith is belief in action. It does not exist apart from its action. So here's my question about do you believe. If what we believe is best understood or most visible in our actions, then what do your actions reveal about what you believe about God, about Jesus? If someone just took a look at your actions— How you live, how you act, how you talk, how you respond, how you engage. If they just looked at your actions on a day-to-day basis, what conclusion would somebody make? What conclusion would you make about this is what I believe? Now, I know for me, I'll just give you two examples. Every time I choose to sin, doesn't matter what the sin is, every time I choose sin in my life, my actions reveal that I believe sin is better in that moment than being obedient to what God has for me. Doesn't matter what the sin is. In that moment, my actions are revealing that I'm believing that this sin, whatever the sin is, is much better, more enjoyable, as it were, than actual being obedient to what God would want me to do. Now, I don't know if this one will connect with you, but every time we choose to worry, every time we choose to fret over something, every time we choose to get anxious, what that action is revealing is that I believe God can't handle it. I just I believe he can't handle it. And so I need to control this. And the way I control it is obsessing over it, thinking about it, worrying about it constantly all the time. Now, I am not suggesting, and I want to be like clear on this, this is not to say that if you believe in Jesus, then you will never, ever sin again. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if you do believe in Jesus and you believe in who Jesus is, what he's done... Uh, it is to say your life will be different. Your life will begin to be much, much different because of your actions will be much different because of what you believe about Jesus and who he is. Consider Paul. Okay, If you were to ask, be asked, look at Paul's actions. Just based on his actions alone, nothing else, what conclusion would you make about what the Apostle Paul believes? For me, I wrote it down in my journal is, There was nothing greater worth living or dying for than Jesus Christ. Nothing. If I was asked, what is it Paul's actions reveal about what he believes? I would say Jesus. There is nothing more important than the person of Jesus. In life and death, it didn't matter for Paul where he was, what he was doing. What mattered more than anything uh, was making much of Jesus. So his actions revealed what he believed. Uh, Governor Festus, and this is kind of where we're headed now in the story tonight, Paul had been in prison uh, in Caesarea for two years. This Governor Festus uh, put Paul in prison for two years. And when Governor Festus uh, is explaining to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa, I'll explain in a little bit who he is, he comes to visit Festus. And Festus says, I got this guy in prison, and his name is Paul. He was accused of these crimes but I have no idea what to do with this guy. I've kept him in prison for two years, but I can't figure out what his actual crime is. And so he says to King Agrippa in Acts 25, the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about the religion and a dead man named Jesus who Paul insists is alive. Festus had no idea what to do with Paul had no idea what to think about this man, but he just could see his actions, and Paul's actions revealed that Paul was convinced that everyone else is saying this man, Jesus, is dead, but Paul is insistent that he is actually alive. Now, because Paul believed that Jesus was alive, it shaped how he, how he talked, what he talked about, and it didn't matter if he was in prison, wherever he was, his conviction, his belief that Jesus is alive reshaped everything. Like, this was not just like this theological thing that Paul agreed with. This was a life belief, as it were, that reshaped everything about Paul. Actions reveal belief. Now, the story we're looking at tonight is a conversation that Paul had with King Agrippa. And the conversation took place in a courtroom. Uh, Festus had no idea what to do with this guy, Paul. And so Paul is invited by Festus to present hey, can you explain one more time your story? So King Agrippa can make a decision on if you've actually committed any crimes because Festus was gonna send Paul uh, to Rome where he would stand trial before Caesar. But this is the interesting thing. Festus had no idea what to actually charge him with. And so he says, King Agrippa, can you help me figure out if this guy's actually committed any crimes? And I love what Festus says in Acts 25. This is again, him saying to King Agrippa, What shall I write to the emperor? For there is no clear charge against him. And so I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the uh, emperor without specifying the charges against him. I'm not sure why it didn't occur to Festus to say it makes no sense to actually keep someone in prison when he's committed no crime. But Festus is thinking, I can't send him to the emperor because I'm going to look foolish sending him to stand trial. And the emperor says, well, what's his crime? I don't know what his crime is. And so this is the scenario of the story of Paul explaining himself, explaining his story to King Agrippa. Now, as I walk through this story in Acts 26, I want all of us to keep in mind the question that Paul ends with. At the end of the story, Paul looks at King Agrippa in verse 27 and says, King Agrippa, do you believe? Do you believe? So, as we walk through this story, I want to share with you three things that the Apostle Paul was convinced of, three things that he believed, and consequently, three things that I believe. But I'll put it before you as we walk through Are these things that you believe? Do you believe these things? Because if you say yes, that you do believe these things, then these things that you say you believe are radically going to alter how you think about God, how you walk with God, how you think about people, how you walk with people. So here are three things that I share with you from this story in Acts 26 of things that Paul believes, things that I believe. Number one would be this I believe it's all grace. It's all grace. Everything, it's all grace. I'm convinced that Paul was convinced that he believed everything in his life is all grace. Everything. So here's a question for us. When did Jesus meet Paul? Like, when did Jesus actually show up in Paul's life? And the answer is, well, when Paul was still Saul. That's when Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up in this man's life when Paul was still Saul. And if you remember anything about Saul... Saul was actually in, in the midst of persecuting Christians to the point of imprisoning them, to the point of killing them. That's when Jesus showed up in Saul and Paul's life is when he was still Saul. And I make this, I highlight this because I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years that say, Michael, I want to I get right with God. I want to begin a relationship with God. I want to have a relationship, but I got to get some things straight in my life. I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. And I should probably start doing this. And when I start doing those things, then I'm going to get right with God. Then I will begin that relationship with God. And if you believe that, and that's kind of how you approach things, you don't believe that it's all grace. For Paul, he believed it's all grace because Jesus showed up in his life at his very worst when he was killing people. And I want to read to the story in Acts 26. This is what Paul is saying to King Agrippa. I'll start at verse 9. And this is Paul speaking to Agrippa. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus. I used to believe this. I would do whatever I could to oppose the name of Jesus. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. You know what that means? He would torture people until they would turn. He would physically torture people, torment people until they said, fine, I curse the name of Jesus. Like, this is who Saul, this is who Paul, used to be. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. And then guess what happens? At his worst moment, when he's torturing people, he's beating people, killing, imprisoning people, verse 12, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. And about noon, your majesty, speaking to King Agrippa, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than heaven, shone down on me and my companions. And we all fell down. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Verse 15, Paul asks an obvious question. Who are you? What is this voice that I am hearing, this light that I'm seeing? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. When did Jesus meet Paul? He met him when he was still Saul. Jesus appeared to Paul when he was still violently opposed to Christ's followers. But this is the beauty of grace. This is the beauty of it all being grace. Jesus meets us where we are and transforms us along the way from what we once were to who he created us to be. This is the beauty of grace. So the question is, do you believe that it's all grace? Do you believe that it's absolutely all grace, that it is grace that actually makes you right with God? It's grace that keeps you right with God? Or do you believe that, yes, I get it. It's grace but I still got to work. I still got to do this. And it's kind of grace plus my best effort, best my performance, as it were. Grace plus my spirituality, my religiosity, my morality, my performance. It's that. Then all is good. Or do you believe it's just Jesus and that's it? It's just grace. I think for some, it's just really hard receiving grace because Our pride, it's an affront, it's an assault to our pride. Because our pride says, I don't want it to just be grace. I want to feel like I earned it. I want to feel like I deserved it. R.C. Sproul commented on this and he said, Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. And so for some, we hear grace and it's all grace, but our pride is like, yeah, but I don't want it to be just grace. I want to earn it. I want to deserve it. For some, it might not necessarily be pride. It just might be shame. It might just be guilt. It might be condemnation that you carry. Of Michael, I, you don't know. You don't know me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've said, the places that I've been, the people that I've hurt. It can't be just grace. I am too far gone. I am too far messed up. And I know what that's felt like. To just feel like there's no way that God's grace... His kindness, His love would be extended to me because I've done this yet again. I swore I'd never do it, but yet I, I found myself doing it again. And so I've, I felt that. And a helpful metaphor that uh, Charles Spurgeon used was the picture of grace is like a bridge. And his, and his point in this illustration was the bridge between you and the bridge between God is just this bridge called Grace. And it's a very strong bridge, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you have, what you will do tomorrow, the bridge of grace is strong enough for you. He said it like this, the bridge of grace will bear your weight. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yes, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting, the same to, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has for them. I love that picture. It's a helpful picture to me to see God's grace is like a bridge, and he's invited me to walk over it. And no matter what I've done, where I've been, that bridge called grace will be strong enough to support me as a massive sinner. What I love about grace, though, and what we see here in Paul is grace doesn't just bring us to God. It does. It doesn't just keep us with God. It does. But grace has an impact on us. If you believe that it is all grace and just grace alone, it will change you. It will heal you. It will ultimately transform you. This is what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I love this is Paul's kind of explanation of who he is. Paul, what's up with you? Why are you like this? Like, what happened? You used to be like this, but now you're like this. What what gives? Explain yourself. I am what I am because of the grace of God. I am what I am because of God's grace to me. And he says, God's grace was not without effect on me. So my question for all of us, what effect... Is God's grace having on you? If you believe that it's all grace and grace alone, like Paul did, what impact, what effect, uh, as it were, is God's grace having on you? Because if you believe it's all grace, it's going to change you. It will heal. It will transform you. How about this? Think about how would you answer the, the question for Paul? What impact, what effect did grace have on Paul? You could answer the question probably many ways, but at least how I wrote it down, uh, more than anything, I'd say Paul desired others to experience and encounter this grace that grabbed hold of him. More than anything, the grace that I see that it had, the effect that grace had on Paul is, I just want other people to know of this grace. I want other people to experience this grace. And so the second thing I'd share with you that Paul believes that I believe is God's grace is for everybody. It is for absolutely everybody everybody. There is no one that you could ever point into your life and say, yeah, God's grace is not for them. They're too messed up. They're too far gone. They're too weird. They're too crazy. They're too much of a skeptic, a doubter, a hater. There's no way that God's grace would be for them too far gone. So let me ask you the question, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to King Agrippa. Who's King Agrippa? All right, let me explain to you who King Agrippa actually is. He is the last in the line of the Herods. So when King Agrippa dies, there are no more Herods, as it were. And if you forgot who the line of Herods were, King Agrippa's great-grandfather, King Herod, do you remember what he did? He's the guy that when Jesus was born was so threatened by Jesus that he said, I want all infant males under the age of two murdered. That's who his great-grandfather was. So threatened by Christ and the arrival of Jesus, let me kill a generation of little boys. Hundreds, if not thousands of boys were killed under King Agrippa. So that's, or I'm sorry, King Herod. That's his great-grandfather. His grand uncle, you know who he was? He was the guy who murdered John the Baptist. He was the guy that was just drunk and said, you know what? You've pleased me so much. He says this to a young girl. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Whatever you ask for, I will give it to you. And so this young girl says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so his great uncle is the man who murdered, by chopping his head off, John the Baptist. His father, okay, King Agrippa's father, you know what he did? He murdered James. James, the brother of John, the follower of the disciple of Jesus. Okay, Not only did he murder John, or murdered James, he also imprisoned Peter numerous times. So now that you know who Paul, is talk, or, uh, who Paul is talking to and who this man is and where he comes from, let me ask you the question. If this were you and you knew who this man was, you knew what his family had done, would there be anything in you that says, man, I can't wait to talk to this guy and tell him about how much God loves him? I can't wait to get a hold of him, have audience with him, so he can know of God's amazing grace, of God's amazing love. Isn't there something in you that would say, you know what? I want to wring this guy's neck. I'm going to be angry and bitter, and I'm going to let him have it for what he's done and for what his family history, his family line has done. His family was responsible for the murder of just countless numbers of people. But what I see in Paul is, man, he's a reminder that God's grace is for absolutely everyone, including King Agrippa. I wrote it down in my journal like this. God's grace flows best through those who have received his grace. God's grace flows best through those who have received his grace. Another way to say that is you are a conduit of God's grace for other people. Paul had every reason to ignore, attack, condemn this man for all that he and his family had done, but he didn't. He extended grace to this man. And I think he was able to do that because he remembered something that I often forget. And I think it's something that all of us often forget. And it's this, if it were not for the grace of God, I would be no different than King Agrippa. I think Paul remembered who he was before Jesus grabbed hold of him. He was no different. And I think sometimes we have a hard time extending grace to the people in our life because we forgot where grace found us and how grace changed us and how grace transformed us. If it were not for the grace of God, I would be no different than King Agrippa. So let me ask the question to you. If it were not for God's grace in your life, who would you be? Who would you be right now if it wasn't for God's grace showing up in your life? Not only... Who would you be? Where would you be right now? I know for me, who I would be and where, I wouldn't be here. And I don't mean preaching. I mean, I wouldn't even be in church. I would have no interest, no desire whatsoever in anything that had anything to do with God. I would be your biggest hedonistic seeking guy ever. I know that's where I would be, and I know that's who I would be. So where would you be? Who would you be if it were not for the grace of God demonstrated to you? Now, you might want, why does this question matter? Why is this question important? And I wrote it down like this. Knowing where you'd be, knowing who you'd be, will help you be a conduit of God's grace for those who are still in that place. And I think that's what happened with Paul. He knew where he would be. He knew what he'd be doing if it wasn't for the grace of God. And so when he comes across a path of someone like Festus or someone like King Agrippa, God, if it wasn't for God's grace to him, he'd be in the same place. So he's able to be a picture of grace to these these folks. He wrote this in his letter to Timothy. And I love these few verses. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, I used to do this. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy, grace on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and the love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize too, uh, they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. I just love that picture of Paul. I know where I was, but grace found me there. Why? So I can be a prime example to other people around me of this is what God's grace is like. This is what God's grace does. Now, I'm pretty confident that King Agrippa was not sitting in the courtroom that day, uh, that morning, thinking to himself, well, Paul, this is very gracious of you to extend grace to me by talking to me. I don't think he was having that conscious thought of, wow, what a gracious man I've met here. Considering who I am, considering my family heritage, what an amazing, gracious person this is to actually give me the time of day I don't think he was thinking that, but he may not have understood all that Paul was doing, but Paul became a prime example of just how amazing God's grace is to someone who needed it. So before I share with you the final point, I just wanted to ask you the question of who is in desperate need of God's grace in your life right now? Another way to ask, who's a King Agrippa that needs you to be an example of God's amazing grace. The prime example that someone in your life who might be far, really far from God, the skeptic, the doubter, the hater, whatever it might be, the one who's just hurt you, maybe even hurts your family, the one who's just been difficult for you to believe or difficult for you to, to love and even to be around. Who's that person that just needs you to be a prime example to them of this is how amazing God's grace is? Paul was able to be that for King Agrippa. Paul was able to be that for Festus and really everyone that was in the courtroom that day, a demonstration, an example of God's amazing grace. Who is that for you? The last point that I would share with you from this story of what Paul believed, what I believe, is that Jesus is all we need. Jesus is all we need. And I say this because once Paul met Jesus, he would never the same. He spent his entire life just pointing people to Jesus. He spent his entire life, from the point he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he spent the remainder of his life pointing people to Jesus because Paul was convinced that what people needed more than anything was just to know who Jesus is and to believe upon him. It says this in Acts 26. He's explaining Uh, to king agrippa the entire courtroom agrippa this is what jesus told me when he met me on that road now get to your feet for i have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness you are to tell the world what you've seen and what i will show you in the future and i will rescue you from both your own people and the gentiles yes i am sending you to the gentiles to open their eyes I want you to consider this is who Jesus is, what Jesus does, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Now, obviously, a lot could be said about what Paul just said there. But as I consider really a summary is what Paul is saying is Jesus is all we need. I wrote it down like this. He was convinced that Jesus is the one who brings us from living in darkness to living in light. Paul knew that. He was in darkness, but Jesus, the light of the world appeared to him. And this is what Jesus actually said of himself. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. He was convinced that Jesus is all we need. Why? Because he brings us from darkness into light. I wrote it down like this, Jesus is the one who rescues us from the power of hell, forgives all sins, and brings us to God. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could rescue me from the power of hell. Only Jesus could forgive all of my sins, not some of them, but all of them. And only Jesus could actually bring me into the family of God. I love how Paul said it in Colossians chapter 1, for Jesus, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That's what he believed about Jesus. He believed that Jesus was enough. From darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from unforgiven, condemned to peace with God, forgiveness of not just some, but all of our sins from not being part of God's family to being in God's family, Paul believed that Jesus is all we need to do all of that. And because Paul believed that, the message that he would go around proclaiming, and he says this to King Agrippa in the very next few verses, Acts 26, verse 20, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And this is what he preached, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they've changed by the good things they do. Paul's message was because he believed Jesus is all we need, he said, repent. And literally, repentance, is, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Paul was convinced all we need is Jesus. You don't need... All those other things, all those things that you pursue to find life, meaning, purpose, pleasure, you don't need those things. All you need is Jesus. So repent, change your mind about trying to find life where there is no life, and change your mind to Jesus is life. Jesus is everything. He is all that we need. And so he called people to repent, experience forgiveness, And that our life might begin to reflect, I believe that Jesus is enough and it's going to show up in actually how we live. Now, what Paul did here in just sharing his story is, I want to finish with where we began. He was leading them to the point of, you need to make a decision. And what I love about this story is there's three decisions that are made here in the story that we can see. Remember, he asked King Agrippa, do you believe this? And so right in the middle of while Paul is is sharing his story, you got Festus. Here's one decision that was made. I call this the crazy to believe. Acts 26 verse 24. Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Okay, that would be like one of you standing up right now and saying, Michael, you are nuts. You're a whack job. You've completely lost it if you believe these things. If you really believe, Michael, it's grace, and that grace is not just for the good people, but for all people. And if you really believe that Jesus is all I need in this life to make me right with God both now and for you, are crazy to believe that. That was Festus' decision. Another decision that was made was actually King Agrippa. In verse 27, 28, it says, King Paul addresses Agrippa, do you believe Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. That's what Paul says. Agrippa, I know you believe this. And Agrippa responds with his choice. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Kind of how I phrased it, I wrote it down. I'm not ready to believe. That's a choice. That's a decision. I'm not ready to believe this. I still need to think about it. I still need to consider it. I still need to ponder this. And unfortunately, we never see King Agrippa again. I have no idea what became of him. I, never, I have no idea if he actually came back and made a choice to say, oh, well, I'm going to trust in the grace. I'm going to trust in that Jesus is what I need. But he delayed his decision, said, I'm not, Do you really think you can just persuade me right now? I'm not ready to believe this. A third choice was made. And this is what I would call, I choose to believe and desire that you believe as well. And this was Paul's decision. He says in response to Agrippa, verse 29, Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am except for these chains. Paul's decision was, I believe. I believe in God's grace. I believe God's grace is for everyone, including everyone in this audience uh, that he was addressing in that courtroom. And his decision was not just for him. He said, I believe these things, but my desire is that you would be like me. And what he was saying is that you too, except for these chains that I have, that I'm bound by these chains, I wish that you would be like me. And who am I? I'm a follower of Jesus. I wish that you would believe in Jesus, in his grace, his grace for everyone, and that Jesus is all that we need. So we stop here. What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe that it's really all grace and grace alone? Do you believe that grace is not just for the good people uh, who we consider to be good, but do you believe grace is for everybody? Everybody. Even the people that you think are, do you believe that it's for everybody? And do you believe that what you need more than anything in this life to get you right with God, both now and for you, is just Jesus? Do you believe those things? Uh, there's a story all the way back in Acts chapter 2. This was almost a year, 15 months ago, that we told this story in Acts 2. And it was a story of Peter actually preaching the message of God's grace for the very first time in Acts 2. And the people were so convinced, they were so compelled by what they heard about God's grace, about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, that they came to Peter and it says they were cut to the heart. And they looked at Peter and said, what do we do? We believe. We, we understand what you have said. We choose to believe, but what do we do now? And I love how Peter responded to them. He said in verse 38 of chapter 2, Peter replied, each Of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So, if you believe as these people believed here in Acts 22, or Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Well, repent, change your mind about the direction and you're going, have a change of mind to the grace of God and who Jesus is, what he's done. And let that change of mind lead to a new life where you're no longer choosing everything that is opposed to God, but you're choosing the things of God. And it says, and receive forgiveness, mercy, peace, receive that grace. And then he says something very interesting, and get baptized. I think for many people, as you consider what you believe, it's a personal private thing. I have met a lot of people, and I'm sure you have, and you honestly might be in that place. of Michael, my belief, what I believe, is very personal and it's very private. It's between me and God, and that's it. I would agree with you with half of that statement. It is a personal thing. It is a personal decision. But if you believe in Jesus, it is not a personal private thing, it's a personal public thing. And that's what baptism is. It's going public, as it were. It's going public and declaring I believe in Jesus. I believe who Jesus is. I believe what Jesus has done in his grace. His grace is for me. It's for everyone. I believe that Jesus is enough. And for those that believe that, Scripture says you make that personal decision a very public proclamation, a very public declaration, as it were.